Today's episode contains depictions of violence against Indigenous people. We ask that you use your best judgment before listening. If you are an Indigenous person, please consider a form of self-care after listening. Thank you. Helen Marie Gibbs was a 30-year-old fun and loving lumpy woman with a successful career as a nurse and three children who she absolutely adored. She had a great life and so much to live for. Unfortunately, things were not always as they seem. Today, for our season finale, we're going to discuss the mysterious death of Helen Marie Burnett Gibbs. This is the Red Justice Project. Hometown hero, lost a life. As Chelsea mentioned, Helen Marie Gibbs, or Marie as her family called her, was a young, lumpy woman from Robeson County who was living in Fayetteville, North Carolina at the time. For those of you not familiar with the area, Fayetteville is in Cumberland County, North Carolina, so just one county over from our home county of Robeson, and it's the largest town or small city in our region. And a lot of that is due to Fort Bragg, which is a military base, being located there. And, you know, I considered Fayetteville a booming metropolis as a kid because, you know, mom and I would clean our house up on Saturday mornings and then get ready. And, you know, as we called it, go to town, which meant, you know, just getting dressed and going out to eat and shopping in Fayetteville because that's kind of where the big mall was. And I absolutely loved it. Yes. So many of my best Saturdays were spent in Fayetteville at the mall or going out to eat at Olive Garden in Fayetteville, which I thought was so fancy back in the day. But even still now with my family, sometimes we'll go. So it's it is like the closest big city to Lumberton, or, or again what we what I what we thought were big cities when we were growing up. And in 1988, Marie lived in Fayetteville with her husband James Gibbs and their three children: Greg, who was 13; Daryl, who was seven years old; and Allison, who was only one year old. We spoke with an anonymous source for this episode, and as we get into the details of this case, it's important to remember that the truth of everything lies with James Gibbs. Marie Gibbs and Susan Whitehair. And with that, I'll have Chelsea jump into the details of the case. So in October 1988, James and Marie Gibbs took their three kids on a vacation to the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Marie's friend, 32-year-old Susan, also joined them on the family vacation along with her two children. The family vacationed pretty often, and they were familiar with the mountains. James reported that he, along with Marie and Susan, decided to leave the kids at the hotel room to quickly drive to a nearby Overlook to capture a picture of the sunset. It was supposed to be a short trip to Chestoa Overlook and then back to the kids. However, this short trip would change their lives forever. James says that when he went to take a photo of the two women, that one of them slipped and pulled the other woman with her. 
causing the two women to tumble off the overlook and down to their death. In an instant, Marie and Susan were gone. And while looking from the outside in, it seemed like a tragic accident for both women, witnesses reported inconsistencies with James's story, and even James himself had a lot of holes in his own account of what happened. Soon, other information would start coming out about James and Marie's marriage that would question what truly happened at Chestoa Overlook that evening. The night authorities found the bodies of Marie and Susan down the cliff of the Overlook, both women were already dead, one being about 150 feet down below the Overlook and the other being about 300 feet below. James Gibbs was also found on the side of the mountain. He had cuts and bruises across his face and his body. He also had an injured back. When speaking with our source for this story, we were told that James actually had what looked like scratch marks down his face from fingernails. James cooperated with authorities and said that all of the marks and injuries came from him attempting to go down the side of the mountain to help the two women. He was hospitalized for his minor injuries. The marks on his face must have piqued police interest because they were photographed to be reviewed later. And as Brittany mentioned, the story that James provided was really strange. Like he could never explain why the three adults decided to leave five children alone in a hotel room so they could go view the sunset if it was supposed to be a family vacation. He also said that he had his back turned to the women setting up the camera when they fell. So if his back was turned, it wouldn't explain how he knew that one woman was falling and grabbed the other one and pulled her over with her. Right, exactly. And how could you know that, you know, unless you were facing them? And I also read another report where he said that the women were engaging in some kind of horseplay and they slipped and fell, which is also inconsistent with the story he said of, you know, one of them slipping or sitting on the the ledge of the overlook and accidentally pulling the other over with her. And to me, that doesn't even make sense in general. I just don't see like a lumpy woman playing like that at a at the edge of a of an overlook like that or really anybody in general pl- playing a game like that and then you know how i mentioned he had minor injuries from being on the side of the mountain so he claimed that he fell about 100 feet according to reports if he had fallen that far he would have been more severely injured and two tourists that were also near the overlook said that they heard a woman screaming, ow, my arm, and then a man's voice kind of speaking back to her, like, you know, as if they were engaging with each other. And another thing that James couldn't explain was the way he said, you know, he was facing with the camera. It was set up to capture kind of an eastward facing sky and overlook. And as we all know, the sunsets in the West. So if they left the hotel to capture the sunset, you know, why were they all facing east and kind of at this eastern overlook? Right. And it was also odd that James did not immediately contact Marie's family. Our interviewee for the show said that the immediate family was not notified about her death right away. The only person that James called was Marie's uncle, who is preacher Montana Locklear, to let him know of her passing. Most of the family actually found out on the news when reports of Marie and Susan began to air. And not only did he not tell her parents or siblings that she had died in the accident, James also became very standoffish in the days following her death. You know, it's typical for Lumbee families to gather after the, after the death of a loved one, you know, at one person's home to mourn together. So in this case, the family gathered at Marie's mama's house in the days leading up to, you know, what we Lumbees call a setting up or what's also known as a wake. James never came to his mother-in-law's house, and during the wake and funeral, he wouldn't even really speak or acknowledge her family. Previously, he was very cordial with her family and, you know, just a super talkative, normal person. 
As we mentioned, she was super close with her family, and, you know, she came from a really tight-knit Lumbee family where it was typical to gather often. You know, by often, I mean at least once a week, you know, on Sundays at Marie's mama's house for Sunday dinner. With all the inconsistencies in James's story, plus witness accounts and the information they learned about James's marriage to Marie, it only took five days after her and Susan's death for James to be arrested and charged with double murder with the possibility of receiving the death penalty if convicted. And while it may seem like, yay, finally justice for an indigenous person, this was definitely not the case. Um, we're going to get into details of the trial a little later, but it's important to know that you know, there were two trials, and the first trial ended in a mistrial. Jurors were deadlocked 10 to 2 for convicting James in the murders. The second trial ended with jurors voting 11 to 1 in James's acquittal. He ultimately spent 595 days in jail awaiting trial after he was arrested in October of 1988. The jury only deliberated for about three hours before making their decision on the case before her deciding he was innocent. So we'd like to spend some time now discussing the trials and the information that was presented while sharing kind of our opinions of the case. So during the second trial, the jurors actually went to the overlook to see where the two women fell. James Gibbs was with the group and was described as teary-eyed as the jurors inspected the scene. And at the end of the trial, one of the jurors, Norman Arrowwood, was quoted saying, he might have been guilty, but the state couldn't prove it. And, you know, I pondered on that simple sentence for a while. You know, James had an all-white jury of his peers, women and men who looked like him, who probably sympathized with him, um, you know, who was was a white man who was now a single father of three, a man who they thought maybe deserved a second chance, even if he did, you know, abuse his indigenous wife, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, and, you know, Marie's family said that even one juror told them after the trial, too bad she was Indian. If she was white, maybe we could have helped her. Which is just, to me, just mind-blowing. I, I can't even imagine somebody coming up to me to say something like that. And then just that shows you the injustice of the whole situation, because if he if that juror believes that, then they know what they did is wrong. And another important thing to mention is Joshua Samuel Jordan, who knew the Gibbs family. So he had purchased a truck from the family that was worth about thirteen thousand dollars. So Jordan said that Gibbs later offered to just give him the truck, along with an additional five thousand dollars if he would kill his wife, Helen Marie. Jordan was called to testify during the first trial, and he said that he never reported the incident because he was afraid. Jordan was a convicted criminal, and it's really hard to say if that had any bearing on how credible the jurors found him during the trial. Although none of um, his offenses were violent crimes, he was serving time for wire fraud, writing bad checks, and parole violations. One article also mentioned that he had a sex offense charge, but we couldn't confirm it through any other articles. Jordan was quoted on the witness stand saying he wanted me to hire someone to kill Mrs. Gibbs because she was running around. The article also said that during the four-week trial, James looked impassive during most of the trial, but when Joshua Jordan testified, he looked livid and was visibly shaking with his jaws clenched. And one of the other disturbing things that came out during the trial was Billy Wiggs' testimony. So Wiggs was a lifelong friend of James Gibbs, but he actually testified against him in the trial. He said that on August 20th, 1988, James came to stay with him for a few days because he had burned Marie with a stun gun. He said he'd used the stun gun on her to make her confess to having an affair with a doctor. 
Another article stated that Marie's sister testified um, in the trial to her sister telling her that James Gibbs had burned her more than 25 times using the stun gun. You know, so we have now two different people telling the same story that James Gibbs was horribly physically violent with his wife. And once I read that in an article, you know, that told me pretty much everything that I needed to know about the type of man and husband that James was. What kind of sick individual would would put their wife through the pain that a stun gun inflicts on a body and much less, you know, doing it 25 times. And and he did it long enough again to burn her. I'll also note that this was mentioned in an article that was mostly focused on the credibility of Joshua Jordan. And it was like domestic violence that Marie suffered was an afterthought. It was another reminder of how indigenous women are discussed in the media. And as a reminder, four out of five indigenous women will experience violence in their lifetime, or roughly 84% of all indigenous women. And also, just remember, Marie had three children, including a year-old baby, and I can't imagine having to go on about your day and continue to mother your children, knowing that, you know, my husband had tased and burned me to get me to confess to something that we're not even sure if it was true or not. And this incident happened just a few weeks before the mountain trip that would change everything. Right, like the physical and emotional abuse of that would have been so tough. And, you know, from all my research in the case, it seemed that all of the articles from that time alluded to the fact that most people actually thought that James pushed both women, you know, from the overlook. I found uh, on the National Park Service History website a newsletter called Ranger Activities Information Exchange, which from what I could tell was a newsletter created periodically on a national level that reported events throughout the various national parks in the United States. Because as a reminder, this happened on the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina. So Brittany, could you please read the excerpt um, regarding Marie and Volume? Volume 4, number 9 of that exchange that was released on December 1988. Yeah, so this is what it says. Blue Ridge Parkway. On the evening of October 17th, an anonymous caller reported that he'd heard a woman calling for help below the parkway's Chestoa View Overlook. Rangers and rescue personnel responded, began a search, and soon found the bodies of Susan Hare, age 32, and Helen Gibbs, age 30, later in the night and they found James Gibbs, 37, who was suffering from cuts and back injuries, which he said he'd received during a fall, which occurred while he was attempting to rescue the two women. According to Gibbs, the three had stopped at the overlook to view the sunset, and the two women fell after engaging in horseplay as they sat on the wall of the overlook. Investigators soon found, however, that Gibbs had recently taken out a $100,000 insurance policy on his wife's life and and that he had previously made threats on her life to others. It was also learned that Helen Gibbs had recently been reinstated as an officer in the Army Nurse Corps and that her husband would be eligible to receive all of her military benefits in the event of her death. Evidence indicated that Hare was traveling with the couple because Helen Gibbs feared for her life. James Gibbs was subsequently indicted on two counts of first-degree murder. You know, there was something about reading that ranger exchange that just made it seem like, you know, there was just so much damning evidence against James. And I couldn't help but think about all of the witness accounts that alluded to his pattern of violent behavior prior to her death. Um, You know, there were accounts also that she planned to finally leave him for good and get a divorce. But it's so hard to say what would have eventually happened between the two of them. I also think that... You know, the mention in the Rangers report of the insurance policy is really important to note. Like, you know, $100,000 would have been a really big sum of money 30 years ago. 
Yeah, so I looked it up, and with inflation, it would have equated to about a quarter of a million dollars in today's numbers. Since James said that Marie was the one to actually take out the insurance policy, I wonder if it was foreshadowing on her part. Like, you know, she had a premonition or she knew that something might happen to her soon, and so she took it out to cover herself and perhaps even so her kids would have additional money. It just seems like too big of a coincidence for them to get the policy just, you know, right before her death. I also think about the inconsistencies between the Gibbs family and Marie's family. Um, James Gibbs' brother, Gerald, said, and I quote, I can't see a shred of evidence against him. He adored that woman. With God as my witness, I never heard a cross word between them. And we know that Marie, who was very close to her siblings and family, had told her sisters about the violence that she was experiencing with James before her death. And I also wish we kind of knew more about her friend, Susan. Again, this is just speculation. And, you know, from the Ranger report, it seems that Marie invited Susan to the mountains as kind of like protection against James. I guess she assumed if another adult was with them that he wouldn't attempt to hurt her. And, you know, if that was the case, I wonder, you know, what was going through James's mind when he took the two women to the Overlook that evening? You know, if he truly did push them over the edge, which again is just speculation um, because he has been proven quote-unquote innocent you know did he realize that he would need to push both to get away with murder you know there's so many unanswered questions in this case the truth is though y'all is that we'll never know what happened at chestoa overlook on october 17th 1988 we do know that there were multiple reports of domestic violence in james and marie's marriage we know that there were inconsistencies about james account of the accident and what witnesses heard It's reported that Marie's children now believe their mother committed suicide along with Susan, or that's what their father has led them to believe over the years. What we do know is that two sets of children lost their mothers that day. Two families lost their matriarchs. And I know for Marie's family, they lost a sister, a daughter, an aunt. And they are left with so many questions about that day. So before we end, we'd like to take a moment of silence to remember Marie and her dear friend Susan, two young women with so much life ahead of them. If you're experiencing domestic violence, there's help for you. Text START, so that's S-T-A-R-T, to 88788 to connect with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And y'all, this episode ends season two for us. We want to truly thank everyone who has listened to us throughout the last two seasons. It's really been an honor to bring the stories of so many of our indigenous brothers and sisters to you. And the work that we do is extremely heavy, but it's light in comparison to the grief that we hear in each of the people we interview for our stories. Your conversations stay with us. Please keep in touch with us on social media by following at Red Justice Project. Thanks again for listening.